You are listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science as part of our Shaping the Post-Covid World series, a digested version of our live online public events. Fifteen years on from the Stern Review, Economics of Climate Change, Innovation, Growth, was recorded on the 26th of October 2021. A full version of this event is available to download via the LSE Events website or from your usual podcast provider. We are delighted to have an audience here at the LSE, as well as an audience online, who are equally welcome to this event, which I'll be chairing by Nick Stern. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the LSE. And this event is co-hosted by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and the ESRC Center for Climate Change Economics and Policy, both of which are hosted here at the LSE. It's also hosted by the Global Alliance of Universities on Climate, of which the LSE is co-chair with Tsinghua University in Beijing. Now, let me introduce Nick, who is one of those people who needs very little introduction, but I will give you a very brief one. Nick is chair of the Grantham Research Institute for Climate and Environment here at the LSE and chair of the ESRC Center. Fifteen years ago, his landmark review of the economics of climate change was published, and the world was never the same. It had been commissioned a year earlier by the then Prime Minister Tony Blair and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, and had a major impact both in the UK and around the world in how we thought about the economics of climate change. He made the economic case for urgent climate action and spawned a huge debate about what should be done. Tonight, Nick will look back and review the progress that we have made since his influential review was published. He will cover the increasingly worrying scientific picture, the advances that we've made in technology, as well as the global response. He'll also talk a little bit about his expectations for COP26. So with that, I'm delighted to hand over to Lord Professor Nick Stern. So thank you. And thank you, Manoush, for your leadership here at the LSE, obviously in general, but also on this particular issue. The slides that I'll speak from, we'll put them on the website so anybody wants to have a look at them. They are intended to be understandable without necessarily listening to me. So the punchline in the Stern Review is that the costs of action are far lower than the costs of inaction. And as uh, Manoush uh, indicated in her introduction, the science has become a lot more worrying. Technology has moved in a way that we really couldn't have anticipated in terms of how fast the cost, for example, of renewables have fallen. So if the science has become more worrying and the technology has moved very fast, then the costs of inaction have gone up and the costs of action have gone down. So why has there not been much action? Well, there's been some action and it's been accelerating recently. And what I want to do is to emphasise just how far that delay has put us behind, but also to note and to build on, develop the um, momentum that started to build in the last uh, few years. One of the reasons for the slow progress is that we were still for a long time, and to some extent still are, locked into the misconception that it's either living standards and growth on the one hand or climate action on the other. 
And that's a very serious mistake. We're going to have to move very fast to change the structure of our economy. It's going to involve a lot of investment, innovation, and dislocation. But that investment and innovation will take us to a very different form of growth and development, much, much more attractive, with much less destruction associated with it. And we really can get to the net zero by 2050 that we need whilst raising our living standards. But we don't get there just by waiting. You have to invest strongly in all forms of capital, physical, human, natural and social. So that's the uh, storyline. There are tremendous benefits to be had. And I'm going to push my own subject a bit, the economics, as to how it can help along that route. Now, this started um, at the G8 summit in 2005. The two subjects were Africa and climate. On climate, we got very, very little. It was quite clear that the only people who understood something about climate in that group of the G8 were Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac. So right after we were discussing, particularly with Gordon Brown, why it was that one was moved faster than the other. And one of the reasons we came to quickly, it wasn't simply that people hadn't thought enough about the science, but they certainly hadn't thought enough about the economics. So we thought, let's try and set that out. Tony Blair, of course, was uh, part of that. Let's turn back to the Stern Review. To try to summarise in just two sentences, the costs of inaction are much greater than the costs of action. And climate change is the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. When you um, act in a way that inflicts costs on other people and you do not pay for those costs, then you do too much of the action that's inflicting costs on other people. That's a market failure. Markets are not giving the right signals unless we build policy. When we did the Stern review, there were only three of the IPCC assessment reviews. And uh, now we've gone on to assessment review six, which came out in August this year. But each one expressed more worry, expressed stronger evidence than the one that went before. But scientists have been cautious. Now, the scientific method is cautious for good reasons. But here, this is about risk. This is about delay being dangerous. The risks which we looked at then um, were, of course, bad enough. But we've come to see in the meantime that we really do risk um, moving into places where we have tipping points, instabilities, the dynamics start to move very powerfully in a bad direction. And we've got to recognise that we are already at the edge of the Holocene period where we grew up as a civilization. Uh, that's the period which has been very, very stable from the point of view of temperature after the warming up of the last ice age, nine, 10,000 years ago. But just think about three degrees. We haven't been there for three million years. Look, we, it could be four or five degrees if we're reckless, but three degrees would likely involve hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people moving. Those who did move would risk conflict and loss of life, and those who didn't move would risk their lives and livelihoods. There were some at the time who suggested that the report was alarmist. We way underestimated the risks. We described it as very dangerous. It was much more than uh, that. So what's happened? Well, actually, emissions are 20% higher now 
we have to get down, of course, to net zero to stabilize. But what we have seen in that time is emissions rising. This is a story that's got not only more difficult because the science has shown the risks are still more worrying, but we've also made the problem much more difficult by upping the concentrations in the atmosphere. At the same time, technology has moved very rapidly in the sense of dramatic reductions in the cost of renewables. The international story has been starting to move. And of course, the most important in that story up to now has been the Paris Agreement of December 2015, where the world committed to the targets of well below two degrees, best efforts to 1.5. Now we have in this last two, three, four years, very strong movement in the private sector. If you just look at the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, it now has uh, assets under management committed to net zero of 90 trillion. At the beginning of last year, it might have corresponded to about 5 trillion. Now, just as countries' commitments to net zero, some countries more credible than others, financial institutions' commitment to net zero, some of them more credible than others. But it's good to have those commitments because that sets a sense of direction. One of the reasons that they've made those commitments is because they do see that they have responsibilities in the community. They've been helped along by the increasing evidence that those who are more responsible in relation to environmental sustainability issues are also those who do better in relation to conventional measures of firm performance. The politics has moved to and fro after some enthusiasm, particularly with Angela Merkel's leadership of the G7, but things got overwhelmed by, in terms of political bandwidth. But in this last couple of years, things have picked up enormously. Now, China made its commitment to go carbon neutral by uh, 2060 in September last year, noticed before the US presidential election. So those are the changes that we've seen. It started to pick up in 2007, 8, 9, then it uh, faltered. 2015 was a pickup with Paris, and then the last two or three years, we've started to see much greater uh, momentum. But it is fair to ask, why is it that we did go so slowly? Well, we still have a system in which people's economic activities are locked into a market structure where the prices are very distorted. Those, uh, the market prices have a very powerful bias in favour of carbon intensity. There are rigidities in uh, infrastructure. And then, of course, there's the political economy of vested interests. Those with vested interest in fossil fuels have been working away to try to stop progress. So big change at pace isn't easy. And that's the big challenge, how we really make it happen. What we have to do in economics is emphasise the importance of the change, show it how it can happen, but also recognise it as a new form of development and growth, which is far more attractive than what went before. We also see now in young people, the results of education in a way that wasn't there when we did the Stern Review. That exposure to the whole science story, I think has been enormously important in changing the politics of, in, with young people. And I think that informed thoughtful participation of young people is becoming more and more important and part of that building momentum.
The earlier you go to net zero, the lower the temperature at which you stabilize. But of course, it's the sum total of emissions over time that counts. So the path to net zero is extremely important. And it's got that the faster it goes down, the lower the temperature at which you stabilize. But if you're going to stabilize, it's got to be net zero. Most investments, ratios around the world, something between 10 and 20% is public, the rest is private. So when we talk about investment and investment driving, which is the big message of what I want to say, this new kind of investment, the majority of that's gonna be private sector. Now in thinking about uh, that investment, Please remember that we live in a world where planned saving is bigger than planned investment. Those of you who remember your economics uh, and Keynes will recognize this as a world which has uh, got insufficient demand. And you can, that has been reflected around the world for a long period of time now with real interest rates for many countries, which are zero or negative. The answer to that question of planned investment being being too small in relation to planned savings, obviously is to increase the planned investment, not to reduce the planned savings because the investment challenge is so strong. So I argue that we need to increase investment. How much do we need to increase investment? Well, you can look at it in different ways, complementary ways, not additive ways. And you keep coming back to something around two or three percentage points of GDP. In the next five or 10 years, it's a question of increasing demand and sheltering supply in the short to medium run. In the medium run, it's a Schumpeterian story of discovery, innovation, investment, and the new kind of growth. And there is no long run high carbon growth story. It simply doesn't exist. It self-destructs on the hostile environment that it creates. The notion of the just transition is fundamental. We are part of a community. We have duties one to the other. And those who are working in industries which will not now uh, be uh, as viable or not viable at all, it's a challenge to us and a duty to invest in people and places to overcome that. There's also a story of international climate justice. Now, if you run back the total amount of emissions that have come from Africa over the, the last couple of hundred years, it might be 3% of the total. And Africa is uh, the most vulnerable uh, continent to climate change. Those who are most vulnerable have not been uh, the prime causes. Now, nevertheless, if we're going to go net zero, it has to be net zero everywhere. And I've argued that the path to net zero is a new form of development. But the duty, it seems to me now, is of the rich world to really help support the poorer world in getting going that investment, which can drive a new form of development. Let me be uh, very clear that we have to work to put development mitigation adaptation together. And there's so many examples. Look at mangroves, restoring degraded land, system of route intensification for ice, public transport, decentralized solar. These are all development mitigation resilience together. A big part of the story will be what the multilateral development banks can do to manage risk, reduce risk, help the investments have steady revenue flows, carry the risk of early stage investment. Those are the kinds of things that are crucial to bringing down the cost of capital and triggering the big private investment flows. This is a moment for the MDBs, multilateral institutions. The challenge now is to take them to a much bigger scale, get them to work much better together.
So it's a critical period, 15 years, uh, 20 years, infrastructure will double. If that infrastructure looks anything like the infrastructure that we've seen in the past, then say goodbye to three degrees, let alone two degrees. So that's the challenge and decisions on the infrastructure, which we will actually build in the next 15 or 20 years will be taken in the next five or 10 years. Economics has largely been absent. Partly we've not grappled with the problem. Partly when we have grappled with the problem, we've misspecified it. I've already said the risk structures in these economic models are way out of whack with what the climate science is telling us. So what we're gonna need from economics, the first an economics of extreme risk. How do we think about problems where hundreds of millions of people could die if we get it wrong? But the bigger part of economics has got to be, how do you change structures in real time? It is public economics as if time matters. Public economics is structural change. It's not comparative statics, it's something very different. Discounting, again, this is a big subject, but actually I'll do it very fast. If you think about what weight you should attach to an extra unit of something, say consumption in the future, relative to an extra unit now, I hope you would ask, well, how well off are those people going to be in the future relative to now? That's the kind of thing that you'd want to think about if you're doing discounting. What you should do is start with the concept which is that relative valuation, not jump straight to the social discount rate, which is actually a subsidiary concept. If we manage climate change badly, then those people are gonna be much worse off. So you can see there is no way of pulling in structure of discounting separate from the valuations that we have and the economic models we build with all the risk that they have in them. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is pure time discounting. Pure time discounting is attaching a lower weight to somebody who comes later, why would you attach a lower weight to increments in consumption to that person who was born later? But one of the criticisms of the Stern Review way back then was that the uh, discount rate was too low. And I think that's just a basic misunderstanding of the underlying economics. Lots of market failures that are relevant here. First and foremost is the greenhouse gas externality market failure, but much more research and development capital markets, the network structures, you know, things like uh, electricity grids, public transport and so on, which depend on public policy. Lots of market imperfections, but lots of absent markets as well. You can't buy the technologies 20 or 30 years from now because you don't know what they are. When markets are absent, it's expectations that are critical in driving investment. Economics should be about fundamental change in real time, the dynamics of the investment, the systems change and putting together a whole set of theory of policies and institutions we need to make that happen. I've been teaching economics for 50 years now and I've never seen a moment where collaboration is more important than now. If we have our expectations and common paths, then that investment's gonna have more confidence and be stronger. Anyway, so what's gonna happen in COP26? Essentially, we've seen good commitments to net zero, but nevertheless, the committed emissions reductions, the planned emissions reductions for 2030 are far too small. So a big test of COP26 will be, are there credible mechanisms to wrap that up? Are we really setting forth acceleration in the momentum that we've begun to see? It's going to be hard. I've emphasized it's going to be hard, but I've emphasized that the road is a very attractive one 
if we get it right. Can we? We've got interest rates on the floor. We've got the planned uh, savings in excess of planned investment. We can have the macro uh, capability of increasing the investment. Quite extraordinary technical change in the relevant dimensions. We've started to get traction in some of these inter international agreements. And finally, we've got the pressure of the young. Yes, we can do it. I'm enormously optimistic about what we can do. I worry deeply about what we will do. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find our latest events via our Twitter at LSE Public Events and like our Facebook page at LSEPS. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website www.lse.ac.uk forward slash events.